Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Eric Corum, founder of AIM7. Welcome back to The Blueprint, where we distill cutting-edge science, leadership, and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your busy lifestyle and goals. Today, I'm joined by Wuhan, named Musical America's Musician of the Year. She's among the most esteemed and influential classical musicians in the world today. She's a concert performer, recording artist, educator, arts administrator, and cultural entrepreneur. In this episode, recorded in 2020, Wuhan reflects on her rigorous training as a child, the illusion of building mastery, how to become the ultimate teammate in examining your why. If you are competitive and seek to be the best in your field, let me just tell you something. This is the podcast for you. Wuhan is not only one of the most elite competitors I've ever met, she's also the ultimate teammate. And today she discusses how she made the shift from wanting to take center stage to making beautiful music with a team. And what she articulates is applicable to any field. You are in for a treat today. But before we get started, please take a moment and hit the subscribe button on whichever listening platform you are listening on. In this way, you will never miss an episode. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Well, good morning. I'm so happy to have you with us today. Thanks for taking some time. Good morning, Eric. It's a joy to be invited. I'm really excited to tell your story, and I would like if you would start with you as a young child and kind of the story of your parents and how you got introduced to music. Well, my parents are quite unusual. Um, my mother came from a very wealthy tea merchant's family that, you know, they are so wealthy that my great-grandfather had nine wives. That's what rich, wealthy Chinese men did. <laughs> <laughs> my father, however, came from the street. Uh, he was kicked out of the family by his stepmother when he was, I think, 14. And he made his way into the army and became a soldier for the Chiang government and then moved to Taiwan and become a chief of policemen. Mm. My parents were married through very difficult circumstances. It was on my grandmother's deathbed. She made my father promise to marry my mother. So... You should just know this background. You will see two very unusual people come from complete opposite side of the society. Mm. My father, because he grew up in the street, he was one of the most feisty, curious uh, learner. He loves going out and looking for new adventures. And I was taught by him every summer we have to pick up something really interesting. When I was six, my father made me play golf, and the golf club was way too tall for me. I remember that vividly. Seven, we had to play bowling. That was our summer activities. He made special bowling ball for us, so because the ball is just too big for a seven-year-old girl. Eight, we learned how to swim, and mm-hmm. then we all became, he hired the Olympic swimmer to taught us how to swim. When I was nine, about April and May-ish, I remember... It was a wedding that my mother sent him and saved up some money, sent him to the American um, GI's fleet market to get an American suit so he could go to the wedding. My father came home with no suit, but a stack of LPs and a turntable. In that (laughs) piece, (laughs) we have Beethoven symphonies, Mozart violin sonatas, uh, Rimsky Korsakov, Suraj, Grave, uh, Tom Pong, uh, Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony, all 
greatest um, music that ever written, of course, Magic Flute. I remember my father playing that LP, that set of LPs and the turntable as soon as he arrived home. And even middle of the night, he would get up and keep the music going. Oh, After, wow. <laughs> yes, he was totally nuts. After about a couple of weeks, he said, all my children have to learn how to make that noise. It's so beautiful. So my parents did not have much money. My mother said, forget it. We can't possibly afford music lessons. I also remember that day very vividly. We're on fourth floor walk up in the apartment building. Another downstairs doorbell was the fourth floor. We hear a doorknob. And my neighbor led a piano deliverer man up the steps. Um, my mother said, who are you? He said, Mrs. Wu, we have a piano for you. And it's already on third floor landing. My mother said, we, well, I didn't order a piano. That this is impossible. We can't possible. They said, no, your husband signed a contract and we're not going down three floors anymore. So wow. this piano showed up. My mother was frantically trying to think of how to pay for it. And of course, we don't have money uh, to have lessons. So my mother saw an advertisement in the newspaper. We were living very close by a university. So she called this piano teacher, put on the ed. She said, I can't pay you, but I can feed you every night. You can come over and have dinner with us. And for that, this piano teacher showed up every night, had dinner with us. He's a poor student. And he taught me two little songs. Just four of us. We had to actually squeeze all on one piano because my father made us all practice. So would you just like rotate or was it just like one person would play, then the next person was up and then that, that's how it worked? In the beginning, you would learn one hand at a time. So we all squeeze in. My father said, <laughs> you can save time. You know, they will each one take an octave. And it was the biggest mess you ever hear. So I'm the second one in the middle. So I managed to push everybody off the piano bench. And uh, I learned two little pieces and we really could not afford music lesson, my mother saw an advertisement for gifted and talented program to train young musicians. And I went audition, I fooled them all. <laughs> <laughs> and I entered the gifted and the talent program. They realized, of course, within an hour that I actually did not read any music. So there was two years of emergency session to, I was assigned piano teachers. I was assigned to wonderful Belgian um, sisters, nuns, and they mm. sat with me and taught me how to play the piano. So they didn't give up on you. Like they, 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 they must have seen something like for you to have just been able to go in there and fool them that <laughs> much with those two songs. I mean, they, they're, cause they're making an investment in you. That's pretty impressive. It was interesting because our music director later told me actually only about 10 years ago, I had dinner with him. I said, Mr. Long, why did you pick me? He said, we were looking for kids that have sparkle in their eyes. Mm. What simple as that? And I thought, wow, that was a very interesting criteria to be a musician, be an artist. And he's probably seen something in me. But uh, of course, the, the skill has to be still required. So the, the emergency session basically it was unusual because usually you want to have kids to enjoy, enjoy the music and they had to be willing to build the skill. In my case, it was the first two years of my study was 
no joy whatsoever. It was girls mm. on technique, scales, arpeggio, polyphonic training in bark, um, in field, so you can train your hand and train your ear to hear different layers of sound in piano playing. And was really two years on an etching, just really building. Just like when you learn to, to play basketball, you mm. just have to hit the hoops. And so two years, I was not allowed any beautiful music. I was so dying to play Chopin. I was so dying to play something beautiful. And nope, you're not ready. You need a skill. And it was brutal. But you know what, Eric? Now I'm so grateful. It was a formative year, 1911. At a time when I turned 11, when I was ready, the first time I played something beautiful, I was so happy and I know I can control this beast. I was so proud and, and then I fell in love with music by myself just because I already had the skill and I feel the sense of accomplishment. And I also know, wow, I'm allowed not really make music. And that was fantastic. I want to lean into something you just said. You said you could control this beast. <laughs> is, is music like an animal to itself? Sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you cannot possibly enjoy the music or being a player uh, without technique. Is similar to when you go on the tennis court. If you want to hit the ball correctly, you need to know all your forms. You need to know all your skills. Otherwise, you would just lose or be miserable. So, of course, music is deeper than that. There are things that not only for technique, also for imagination, because it's another layer in music. When you say you have technique, it doesn't mean you play fast or loud. It means you have the control to serve whatever the music calls for. And that's also a very important point. It's not just technical stuff. It's also your brain has to be completely open for new concept, new idea, new sound. Oh, there's so many layers to this, to music that, I mean, like we listen to something, we listen to a beautiful piece of music as a layperson. And you're like, oh, you have these different instruments, but there is like literally like a living, breathing animal or organism that you are trying to direct. Uh, and that is, that is so fascinating. So when you hit 11, I think you started really competing quite frequently. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, they sent me for competitions because the special music training program, we were a group of young kids selected. We're representing our country. We're also representing the Taiwan citizens that connect to the Western culture. This is back in the 1970s, early 70s. And the culture exchange was very important. So I was sent to perform for many uh, important politicians or foreign guests. I remember we flew to Guam to play for Adele Marcus, the shoe lady in Philippines. Uh, she was so glamorous and so beautiful. Um, I remember we were sent to Europe to compete in a string orchestra. I played both piano and viola. All of us, us in the special music training program are double major. 
So we play two instruments equally well. Plus, uh, I have to, every year, you have the uh, chance to choose the third instrument. So at all time, I'm playing three, practice three instruments when I was young. So I play flute, percussion, two Chinese instruments. And one year, I tried to sing and my mother begged me to stop. <laughs> <laughs> that's a yeah. whole different instrument. That, that's one that you really have to be gifted with. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But um, it was a very rigorous schedule. Since we were 11 and a half, we had to, uh, when we turned into at least sixth, sixth grade, we had to live in school. But there's just not enough time to really accommodate all the demands of the practice. So it saves the commute time. So every minute of the day is very scheduled, very carefully crafted. And knowing the teenager, none of us wants to practice. So when you go into the practice room, it's a small room with your piano. You're not allowed to bring anything in except your music. And there are people marching up and down to to, um, make sure you don't climb out the window or escape or daydream. Or, you know, and there's no cell phone, no anything. So we would, every day you can sit there for three hours. You can daydream and waste your time or you end up practicing. So you you told me before, this was like a, you started at 5 a.m. in the morning. Correct. We had to be waking up at 5 and by about 5.45, you're already in the practice room for two hours before the day starts. Then you have breakfast and you have academic work and then um, after dinner you do another hour or an hour and a half and then do your homework and you're in bed by nine and it's uh, Saturday we don't, we did not have Saturday Saturday is all the extra music curriculum orchestra chorus music training until about three and you go home to see your parents and you have to be report back next afternoon at probably like five o'clock so you have 24 hours to go home how long did this last for? How many years? Probably six years from 11 and a half, 12 to 18 uh, until we graduate. It was actually a very interesting time. Everybody wears uniforms, so you don't have time to think of fashions or mm. enjoyment. We were told we are quite special <laughs> because we could play music. Uh, because of that, we were sent to, uh, to perform. Uh, we were told we will be leaders. And so there's a lot of leadership training, which I did not realize at the time. Mm. Uh, we all had to get up and make public speech. Um, every Saturday, the class is divided into a structure. Um, every six months, we rotate. You can be the mayor. It's a structure of the city hall. Uh, we will have a director for finance, director for decoration, director for behavior, which is the police department, behavior. A director for uh, communication, so you have to publish a newspaper if you need to, and you have a mayor and a vice mayor. And so, if you rotate to each position, you have to report. You know, this week the class raised a hundred twenty dollars, and then you have to fly over, and the decoration director will say, "I need thirty dollars to buy balloons for the room," and then the and then the police department has to get up and say, so-and-so did not clean the room. Oh, there's a senior <laughs> director as well that we had to clean everything afterwards. And you rotate the position so you understand 
the halls. You understand how to serve the classroom. Everybody has a responsibility. And the public training, public speaking training, this report was brutal. It was so boring and so difficult, but you get used to it. Now I can memorize a speech in about 15 minutes without notes. Wow. That, that's coming from that period of training. And it's because all of my friends on this small class, this particular experimental program only lasted four years. And the first four years of these um, musicians, many of them quit music. But if you go back to Taiwan, you see all of us uh, are in directorship or running departments, um, the head of the university or the head of concert hall or head of an orchestra. All of us are holding on decision-making position. So it's a fascinating program that I was lucky to cut in. Have any of your former classmates thought about reestablishing this type of school again? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, I have to say it was brutal, but it really did, okay. train, it did train your character. It's, it's a must for me to get up early morning to do my work or to take on big projects without fear and have that really forced analytical ability really train me to do what I do right now. And that's really super important. But it takes a whole group of most maniacal educators to help us through this demanding schedule. We had we had a best, best teachers, best theory teacher, best instrumental teacher. All of our teachers came from the university level. It was not a kids program whatsoever. So we were very lucky. So you need a tremendous amount of support and you need a very visionary, uh, strong leaders to fan off, which we did have, to fan off all the normal expectation on the education system. Wow. That's not easy. No, it's That's not. After four years, because it was, uh, the, the, the school is like, what are these kids? Why, why are they going away? They need to finish their math. And but we would say, no, our math is just fine. <laughs> they got to practice. So there's a lot of fights. Um, I remember that vividly with our teacher, but they're very protective of us. You got to practice, you got to perform, and um, you got to improve. So a lot of the folks I know went off to different countries when you graduated. What, what happened to you when you graduated the program at 18? What happened? I was the top of the country. I was the highest ranking in all exams. So I got to choose my university. The logical thing is to choose the most famous university, which uh, when you graduate, you will be guaranteed a teaching post. My piano teacher came from Paris, however, uh, decided to teach in the newly formed private school and newly formed a private school music department. And the department head came to my house and talked to my parents and said, because she's the highest ranking, if she chooses our department, we will immediately jump the rank as a school's rank rating. So for that, we also know she has been trained since a very young age. 
the music department is brand new. All the kids coming has to go from grade one kind of a music level. And she has already done that. So they made a deal with me, actually. My parents didn't know what's going on. That I actually don't really need to go to school. I can somehow uh, curate my own uh, curriculum. Mm -hmm. So I have to go to school to do exams. I have to go to school to do the jewelry. But I can choose projects outside of school and I can concentrate on performing activities, which I did. I choose to play opera accompaniment because I was curious. I was able to play in the orchestra with my viola. I was able to accept concert engagement and traveling. So that was important to me. And, you know, to be a big fish in a small pond, which I want only have at that point three major uh, metropolitan area. So in order to, if you learn one piece, you play in three, three cities and you're done. You can't repeat. So you actually end up has to keep learning a lot of repertoire. Unlike in the U.S., you know, if I learn a program, I can travel 20 different cities all over the United States and, and hone on my skill, um, which I couldn't do in Taiwan. So I end up have a lot of opportunity to explore and go to a lot of concerts and do my own research. So I became my own teacher in very young age immediately. And that was really helpful for a musician. I had to be resourceful, otherwise I would be bored. <laughs> so you learned to direct your own education in a sense, like you, they brought you to a certain point and then basically the student then became the teacher and of, of yourself, like, cause you had to keep moving forward. So were you basically trying to find new ways to push yourself in kind of a unique situation? Correct. Uh, for instance, I started teach when I was 18 because I like to be independent. I like to make money. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I was a very good teacher. I was training a lot of young kids to win competitions. So I could, you know, the parents discover it. They send the kids to me that after a few sessions, the kids just sound so much better. So I was paid very well. Every Friday, Saturday, I have a big class all day long. And a lot of them, a lot of them are competition preparation. And I was young. I was not an artist. That's the way you describe it. That's too artistic. I was just mm. a very practical, like, I'm going to make money and I'm going to support myself. So I did that. I did a lot of interesting things. For instance, I play in the, in the uh, recording studios on my viola. So I will play a lot of pop music, Taiwanese pop soundtrack. And that you make a lot of money because of royalty and everything. And I also play concertos uh, on the piano. In the first half and second half, I can go into the orchestra, play my viola in the viola section. So I get double salary, you know. <laughs> so you were really, were you motivated financially because of where you came from? Yes, I was okay. motivated financially because I don't want to get married off. Mm. I want to have my own say about my own future. And so when the opportunity came up, when I, last year of my college, I played a recital and my 
friend's piano teacher who was traveling to Taiwan for concert from my recital and he came backstage. His name is Raymond Hansen. And he said, you're incredibly talented, but you really should come to the Western world and explore where this music came from. So I did. I said, where is this? And he said, I am from Hartford, Connecticut, Hart School of Music. And I remember this vividly. I went home and told my mother, there was a professor from Hartford who wanted to offer me a scholarship. My mother said, oh, I heard of Harvard. That's very good. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, Hartford. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't know the difference. Oh, wow. <laughs> very familiar. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> scholarship package showed up, and my mother said, you should go. Mm. My next move in Taiwan is just look for a teaching position and and get married, which is expected of you, and which I didn't want to have anything to do with that. So mm. I stayed to America. I went to Hartford, Connecticut, and my teacher, the first thing he asked me is, have you done any chamber music? I said, what is that? No, I'm a soloist. I'm trying to play concertos and compete. He said, no, you need to learn Chinese music. If you don't, you will be a really good pianist, but you will never be a great musician. Let's go into that a little bit. What do you mean by that? Oh, well, I was fascinated by that. I said, what do you mean? And my teacher said, chamber music. He didn't really say that. I discovered that myself. He just basically said chamber music is the hardest art form because... When you play solo, you are by yourself. You can do whatever you want. When you play a concerto with the orchestra and the conductor, they're supposed to follow the soloists. So you make the decision yourself. You play, you lead everybody. In the solo world, of course, you make decision and you work with the conductor. You follow him as well. Okay, So there is two people communication between you and the conductor. When you play chamber music, suddenly you have between one to 16 people, like right around you. The concept of chamber music is everybody is equal. So your job is to listen and study your score so thoroughly that you can make suggestions to anybody in your group and in order to make everybody sound great. So it's part of collaborative effort and to jointly to make the group sounds well. As well as, so you become either a great leader, you have to be at the same time a great supporter, depends what the score require of you. So even when I just say that, you have to know immediately that you really have to study the score. In the concerto world, you somehow, you can get by with knowing your parts superbly and, you know, don't really care about what's going on in the orchestra. But if you really understand the complete score, how composer want to put together, suddenly you realize your part is the conversation between you and the clarinet or you and the cello. And so the study of the complete score becomes super important. And that training can easily come from chamber music. And in chamber music, you cannot going to a group without knowing the complete score because then you will be completely lost. You will be just by yourself. 
And chamomiles you also have one really important factor is you have to have a super sensitive ear to pick up what's going on around you. You have to have the sensitivity. For instance, if you're playing a piano trio, which is a violin, a cello, and a piano, you know your cello part, you know your violin part, you know your piano part. So when your violinists throw you a line that you have to pick up immediately and throw another line back, and that's when the fun starts. So this is a dynamic thing. All right. It's a dynamic. It's a conversation. It's a Mm. communicating thing. And you have to have the chops in order to do that. If you can't control your own instrument, somebody throws you a juicy vibrato, you know, the most beautiful sound, and you can't make it your own instrument, the other people will look at you like, mm, you're not the best player. Immediately, you will notice. You know, anybody can do that a, a, a transmission of an instant magic. That makes it very, very difficult. You also have to hold on to anything you believe in. You have to play your part so strongly that everybody will go, wow, I got to sound like that. Everybody will follow you. But if your colleague is playing a major melody, you have to learn how to duck underneath it and caress the melody and make, make the melody sound even more spectacular from the things you make surrounding that. So every phrase takes tremendous amount of ingenuity, studying, and then you have to leave yourself wide open because you never know what your colleagues, what other musicians will be doing. So you have to be always wide open. So if you play a solo piece, you can learn like a little monkey, play them really well, do them over and over the same way. And knowing that everybody will be so happy and glad. In chamber music, you can't do that. If you are sort of just doing the same way, it will be too rigid. It will lose the essence of communication and music making. So it's a super, super important musical training, as well as a personality training. I became a much better person since I played gender music. I was about to say, was there a little (laughs) bit of humility involved in this? It's all about humility. You can't go in, look, if you're not nice, nobody wants to play with you. Just as simple as that. And if you don't know how to make constructive suggestions, not to offend people, make suggestions that are um, so interesting that people is willing to try or have the humor to diffuse any argument or have the, the modesty to try any ideas that anybody throw at you and to have that open mind always wants to explore those are the major traits and character that is required to play great gender music. So when you do that exercise over and over in rehearsals, you just naturally become a better person. <laughs> you sit there, you say, I want to make this phrase sounds like that. Your brain is going over and over. This person is a confrontational kind of personality. How can I make this suggestion to make things fun for everybody? To, to make things really happen quickly. Or this person is a, is a quiet kind of person. How can I make a joke to bring him out of his shell? Or, you know, so it's a lot of sort of group dynamic and a lot of psychology 
as well as a lot of conviction in music. And then so those are the game for playing great chamber music. And I loved it. As soon as I discovered this music, I was so excited. This is so fascinating. And because I missed out the training for a good 22 years in my life, I went straight to gobble up the whole chamber music repertoire. So mm. the next 10 years, I pretty much did the most intense studying of my life. I learned all of the violin, cello, viola, sonatas, all of the piano trios, all of the piano quartet, piano quintet, everything I can find, I learned them. And that sort of was important to build up that really groundswell of the repertoire knowledge. So you went to the most rigorous school possible for a youth, but that really wasn't the, like the hardest training of your life. It was when you, to me, it sounds like you, you went from a, in sport, you went from a, like a sprinter to now you're on the relay team and everybody's working together. And so now you have to up your game even more so that you can be a better teammate. Correct. That's, that's similar to your, your analysis is very accurate. And it's also, I found my passion. Before that, I was given a career without a choice. And I was also forced to learn the craft. And that was not my choice when I was young. But at this point, when I came to the U.S., the first six months, I wear jeans. I sat on the floor. I even tried cigarettes. I learned how to swear, which I was never allowed to do <laughs> when I was young. For about six months, I did all that. I said, okay, I've done it. I got out of my system and I came back to work. So that was a fascinating time for me. I was the first time I could be rebellious. And that was important to get out of your system. Did you go down to New York City? No, I was in Hartford for two years. But I, I came down to New York every week to hear concerts. Mm. What did you think I, of New York? I loved it. Remember earlier time I talked about that music director in the new music department in the Suzhou University? She came and convinced me to enter the art school, uh, to embrace the new, new school, which I did. She was the one on my first trip down to New York, picked me up and took me to Chinatown and introduced me to her favorite Chinese restaurant called Hakki. It's still there. Wow. Um, it's a dingy place, but has the greatest Chinese homemade food. And then she drove me by Lincoln Center. And I was so excited because the fountains in front of the Met Opera is the glimmering of it. It's like play almost early evening, beautiful light and people are going to concert. And I oh, I want to play there so bad. This is amazing. And Mrs. Wong said, you know, someday you will. And I would never imagine someday what I actually will be the only music, Chinese music director in the whole campus. And that was really important for me that you have something you can aspire to. There's something to look for, forward to and to work for. That was very inspiring for me to see that and feeling that there's something I can get to and I can 
think my teeth into to work for. Mm. Such a lovely story. I mean, your story is so fascinating. There are so many twists and turns. This is super exciting. I'm loving this conversation. Um, (laughs) So after your time in Hartford, where did you go from there? I came to New York. The first, I came here uh, to Hartford on August 1981. By January uh, 1982, my teacher said, learn chamber music. And I said, how do you do that? He said, well, there was a young string quartet just signed up as the resident quartet in our school. And they want to run a competition to select students to play with them. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm, I love competition. I went a lot when I was a kid. <laughs> but I never done a chamber music competition. So my teacher said, learn the Schumann quintet. Schumann Quintet is one of the most romantic quintet. Schumann wrote this for his lovely wife, Clara Schumann, so she could tour without the orchestra, just with a string quartet. This is the first ever piano quintet ever written. Has the most delicious, beautiful second theme on the first movement, which is between the piano and the cello. And you have the, you know, you are throwing the phrase. Go back and forth and having mm. the most delicious conversation. Learn the piece, and I won the competition. And the young string quartet is the Emerson String Quartet. And the cellist, David Finkel, and my husband from those places. Uh, <laughs> and the Emerson Quartet then end up becoming one of the greatest quartet um, in the world. They won nine Grammys. Uh, they travel playing, you know, winning musician of the ensemble of the year and all these honors, gramophone award. And so we have a cabinet in our house is filled with these awards and he has three honorary doctoral degrees and this and that. So that sort of set the stage for me to be right next to the most important influence of my life, which is my husband. Mm. He's also a fascinating person. Came from the background, both parents are educators in a private school in New Jersey. And their belief is that you should never underestimate any children's capability to appreciate the finest thing in life. So the school, the school is called Farbrook School. Pop was, um, we call Pop, David's father, uh, was the music director there. And he formed the curriculum for all the kids. The kids will learn Bach, uh, Bach chorale. When soon kindergarten comes, they read Shakespeare, sonnets. Since kindergartens, they all, you know, when you go to Farbrook School for the assembly, Yes, the, the last time I was there with the symphonies was playing. They can sing runs or fugue. All the kids can do that. The most complicated Western culture, they appreciate that. It's one of the most unusual education. So, my, uh, so David, is my husband, who was sort of brought up that way, had incredible high standard, incredible good taste. At the same time, sensing incredible hard work, 
when he graduated from his parents' school, he entered the music school for six months, and he thought that was super boring. And he took his first job as the principal cellist of the concerto soloist when he was 19 years old and left school and never went back. So wow. he was also a self-taught person. Uh, we both, because of our unusual background, felt we did not have the Ivy League school's endorsement or a fancy conservatory diploma. We both feel very humble, very efficient in our knowledge. So we are both avid learners. We read, we write, we produce, we try to make up the difference that we never had that rigorous liberal arts training. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna lean into that for just a second because you say you didn't have the the rigorous liberal arts training, but you did go through some of the most rigorous training on, I could imagine in the world as a child. And then education is far more, I think, than a degree. You were educate you you received education, you educated yourself, and then you were able to. It's kind of like. Um, these entrepreneurs that leave Harvard, you know, and then go start these billion dollar companies, you know, they don't, they didn't, they just didn't need that. You know what I'm saying? They had trained themselves how to program and create, and then they created some of the greatest things, you know, Microsoft or whatever. So do you still feel like you have something to prove? Yes. All the time. Okay. <laughs> yes. I always feel I don't know enough when I'm doing you know, my main job as artistic director is having repertoire knowledge so I can do programming and also explain music to the audience and as well to my musicians and know the industry well. And I never feel that I know enough. Every day, every week, I'm still finding some new pieces that I never heard of and I get so excited. I'm grabbing music and learn them all so I know how to program it, you know, where are the challenges in the specific piece. And so when I go to dress rehearsal, I can address those questions. Um, if somebody playing a wrong note, I would know because I need to know those pieces inside out myself. So it's a great, great joy to continue to expand yourself. And fortunately, music, the repertoire, for, for classical music are so huge. I don't think I will ever be able to tackle them all. I probably know, I don't know, 20% of the whole treasure trove. And I'm supposed to be ahead of everybody else, but I still feel very uh, not really um, knowing enough to do the best job I have. So we both always feel that we need to keep learning. Yeah. That's very encouraging. Because <laughs> um, I personally, I'm always on this quest to learn more. And I feel like sometimes I do feel these senses of inadequacy because I'm like, okay, I, I got this doctoral degree, but I really still have so much that I don't know. And you, it's almost like you're speaking falsehood, you know, falsities, <laughs> but you're not, you know what I'm saying? Like you've learned so much. And I'm like, I sometimes I feel like a charlatan. Yes. Even though I'm, do you know what I'm saying? And I think that's, that's, that's driven from an internal drive. And it's so encouraging to hear somebody that I would consider a master at their craft 
to be saying the same things. I hope a lot of other people glean some encouragement from that. Well, you know, you mentioned the master of your craft. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's such thing <laughs> because it's impossible, especially in art. You never finish climbing that mountain in front of you. For music or for performers, you never have a defined finish line. You always could do better. And when you play concert, after two hours, it's gone. Right? And the next night when you walk on the stage again, you have to recreate and do better. If you don't evolve, you become a very boring artist. So you need to continue to evolve your artistic vision or artistic opinions. And the, if you also, for our craft, and I don't know, probably sports are the same thing. And I believe in every other trade that if you don't continue to exercise your craft, it will leave you. you if you want to be on top of your game, you have to constantly polish it, re-examine it, and see if you're a better way of doing the same thing that you have been doing. I think also relationships are super important in life. I learned from chamber music to trust people, to walk on stage with your colleague, that you only, let's say a piano trio or a piano quartet, you're only part of the one-third or quarter of the songs. So you need to trust your colleague on stage that will deliver what you want to do. And you need to learn how to be nice to other people. And I think those relationships in life uh, become priority uh, for me. Um, I know I have a very successful career, a very unusual career. But in the end of the day, what I could give back to my colleagues, to my industry, to my art form, that actually became, when I'm getting older, when I have kids, became a priority. I could easily stay in the career path just playing concerts and making money like what I did when I was young and be super independent and enjoy life. I took the administrative jobs like I have right now with Lincoln Center, with Music and Menlo, with Artist Advisor positions in many organizations, such as for arts in Palm Beach or Wolf Trap in Washington, D.C., is because I feel I could make a difference. And that's a completely different mentality versus being just an athlete or a musician that's trying to make a living. In the end of the day, especially this pandemic, since all the concerts have canceled, as David says, you wake up every morning, you look at your instrument, you actually don't have a reason to practice because you don't need to perform anymore. So you look at your instrument, you have to decide, you hit, why, you have to re-examine that, which I think is very healthy. Why do you play instrument? Why do you do what you do again? And then you find that reconfirmation of why and how, and the reason you became a musician and you reaffirm that commitment 
and that quest has nothing to do with making a living. That's that's those commitments, the hardworking and all that, it became the making a living became quite secondary. Uh, is what you feel is the most important in your life. And so we still practice every day, two, three hours, and look at your instrument, say, God, I love music so much. I'm going to sit down and play. I think this is the perfect ending right here because there's so many questions I wanted to ask you today and you answered every single one of them. And here we are at a very difficult time. There's a lot of people hurting, but we can still keep pushing forward. Eric, we not only can, we can also do a lot of things for others. Yes. You no, know, for Christmas, I remember my family, David and I led this effort. We make every family member choose the charities that give them, and we gave in their honors. Mm-hmm. And so this Christmas was one of the happiest Christmas. You know, we are giving money to the soup kitchen, to the animal shelter, to the, you know, the battered women's facilities, homeless shelters. And we should do that. There's no question we need to do that at this difficult time. If we can all afford it, we should all do something nice for other people. I love your heart. You really have a great heart for other people. And I hope people that are listening to this today, like take some encouragement and look around you for opportunities to impact somebody else's life. And I think this is the perfect story of being, moving from being a soloist to being in a chamber. You know, it's moving from being the star of the show to serving others. And that is like, that. this is such an amazing message. It's such a pivotal time in the history of our world. So thank you for coming on today. Thank you for sharing this beautiful message. And I can't wait to come to New York one day to see you perform. If you found today's podcast useful, please consider leaving us a comment and a review in the Apple Podcast app as this helps us reach more folks with the message of the blueprint. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode.